There's a man named Gail Van Rienen who wrote a book called Missions. And in this book, this is what he writes. Mission is to the church what blood is to the body. As a body cannot survive without blood, so the church cannot survive without mission. Without blood, the body dies. Without mission, the church dies. The church most frequently establishes the reason for its existence while articulating its faith. An unexpressed faith withers. A Christian fellowship without mission loses its vitality. Mission is the force that gives the body of Christ vibrancy, purpose, and direction. Now notice what he doesn't say in that quote. He doesn't say that mission is to the pastor what blood is to the body. And he doesn't say mission is to the church leaders or the missionaries what blood is to the body. He says mission is to the church. And I believe he's right. A healthy church is one whose members are on mission together. The mission does not rest on the shoulders of just a few. And if mission is to the church what blood is to the body, then we understand that there is not one part of the body that is not in dire need of blood. So there is not one member of a church that is not called to mission. And if mission is to the church what blood is to the body, then we understand that it's absolutely essential that we know what this mission is. What is the mission of God? Before we get there, I want to bring us back to what we've worked through the last three weeks. So today marks our final sermon in our mini-series on practices of the church. Next week, we're diving into the book of Romans, and we'll be there for quite some time. But over the last three weeks, we began by looking at baptism as the sign of the new covenant that identifies us with Christ and marks us as members of God's family. Right? Baptism is the visible sign of the invisible work of conversion that God has accomplished in you. And then we looked at the Lord's Supper, at communion, and we looked at that as the ceremony of the new covenant through which God's people, those who have come to faith in Christ and have been marked by baptism, they are grounded, spiritually nourished, and united in the gospel of Christ. That is communion. And then we worked through membership. And we established that biblical membership is when God's people come under Jesus' authority by coming together with specific believers under specific elders in a specific church. And as we worked through membership last week, Pastor Tim laid out, laid out a helpful contrast between two paradigms as it relates to conversion, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and membership. And he walked us through this paradigm, and this paradigm is one that I believe many of us, including myself, have probably walked in for a number of years. And it goes something like this. We came to know Christ. I got baptized to declare my commitment to him. I take communion to fellowship with Jesus, to remember what Jesus did for me personally on the cross. And I may or may not be a member of the church. This is the paradigm that I think is a fairly common one in Christianity today. 
And in this paradigm, the, the focal point, it's on the individual. And each component of this paradigm, conversion, baptism, communion, and membership, they are all separate and distinct pieces that don't really interact with one another. They don't have any meaningful connection with one another. And in light of our topic this morning, there's one more component to this paradigm that I would add. And it would be this. I am commissioned by Jesus to make disciples. Now again, this is the common paradigm. And one that we're challenging a little bit. And as we challenge this paradigm, here's the question. Does that mean that if I've walked in this paradigm for the last 13 years of following the Lord, that those 13 years have been nothing? That I've just totally been walking in crazy disobedience to the Lord? Is that that what that means? No, not at all, right? In fact, when you consider this common paradigm, there's nothing inherently untrue about it. There is just far greater depth that we need to go and insight that we need to receive around these elements. And what that means is that God, in his grace, he continues to grow us and sanctify us and give us a deeper understanding of his character and his will as a church. And as he does so, then we are to respond. See, my hope is that God never stops revealing more of himself to us as a church. I pray that God continues to refine us and mold us more and more into his image. And so... God, in his grace, I believe, has helped us to see what I believe is a more helpful biblical paradigm that shows us how conversion, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and membership all work in harmony with one another in the life of the church. And Tim walked through this last week as well, and it goes something like this. We came into God's family through Christ. We are marked as family members through baptism. We are knit together as a family through communion. We are bound together as a family through membership. And we are sent together as a family on mission. And so here the focus is not the individual, but rather on God. And how God gathers his people into his family, unites them together, and sends them as a family, as God's gathered people on his mission. And so it's through this paradigm, through thinking through how God has orchestrated things in this way, that we want to answer this question. What is God's mission? What is he after What is he commissioning us to do? And a big picture answer to this question is right here. God's mission is to make himself known by gathering his people back to himself. God's mission is to make himself known, to glorify himself by gathering his people back to himself. And we just studied the first 22 books of Genesis as a church. One year ago today marks the Genesis 1-1. <laughs> remember that. And you'll remember that we worked through Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 narrates a very important event. It's a landmark event in Scripture. 
So after the fall in Genesis 3, every human was born with a sin nature. As the population grew, so did wickedness. In fact, humanity became so wicked that God poured out his judgment through a worldwide flood. He destroyed every living thing on the face of the planet, except for Noah and his family. And after the flood, the condition of the human heart did not change. And so as Noah's family continued to multiply, then so did wickedness once again. And once again, God poured out his judgment. And this time, in Genesis 11 though, it was not a worldwide flood. It was an intentional scattering of the nations. And we read about it in Genesis 11. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip to Genesis 11 with me quickly. Genesis 11, verse 1 says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down and looked over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Genesis 11, God scattered the nations. But there's another landmark event in Scripture that we need to visit. And this time, this event is found in the book of Revelation, which means this time, this landmark event has not yet happened. So flip back then to Revelation 7, the other end of your Bible, starting in verse 9. And it says, after this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, throne and all the elders and the four living creatures fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here, God has gathered the nations. And so the question that you and I have is how do we get from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7. How do we get from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7? And the answer is sprinkled throughout all of Scripture. See, Genesis 12, immediately after the account of the Tower of Babel, God promises Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we can trace this promise of the seed, the promised Messiah, from that moment all the way through the Old Testament. 
And then we get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The Gospels chronicle the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the promised Messiah. So the answer to how we get from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7 is first and foremost through the promised Messiah. It is first and foremost through Christ. And the sin, rebellion, and pride that caused God to scatter the nations in Genesis 11, that is the result of the fall. Right? In the beginning, God created everything. He, he created people, and he created people to know him and to enjoy him, to walk with him, and to bear his image. And because God created everything, what that means is that God has ultimate authority over everything and everyone. And because God has ultimate authority, it means he has the power of judgment. And so when God or when Adam and Eve rejected God's authoritative rule in the garden, sin was then introduced into every human heart. And since that moment, every human heart would be born with a sin nature, which means that the same sin and pride and rebellion that existed in the human heart in Genesis 11 is the same sin and pride and rebellion that exists in you and me. And we are therefore subject to God's judgment. The reason this matters more than anything in the world is because sin is what prevents us from knowing God, enjoying Him, and walking with Him, and bearing His image. It prevents us from doing that which we have been created to do. And instead, what sin does is it separates us relationally from God. And in our sin, we deserve to be separated, to be displaced, to be removed from the good and glorious presence of the Lord. We deserve to be scattered. And the Bible tells us that the price our sin deserves, it is death, an eternal death, separated from God, conscious, consciously aware of his judgment, his wrath, his torment in a place called hell. See, in our sins, we are spiritually dead. This is our problem. There's no greater problem that will ever confront a human being. Spiritual death, it's, it's not just the greatest problem, it's a universal problem. It confronts every single human to have ever existed. It includes you, it includes me. And if you're still in your sin, then that is your biggest problem. And if that is your biggest problem, do you know what your biggest need is? It is Righteousness. Your biggest need is righteousness. It's to be declared righteous. But the thing is, you can't earn your righteousness. So many people have tried to earn their right standing before God. And I think going to church and reading and praying and confessing sins and getting baptized and taking communion and not drinking and not swearing and not being sexually immoral or whatever it is, somehow all of that is going to erase their debt of sin And achieve righteousness for them. It will not. And so how do we obtain righteousness? It is through Christ. It is through the Son of God. Whom all of scripture points to. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was fully human. He was fully God. He was completely righteous. And Jesus did not deserve death. Yet he went to the cross. 
he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. He took our sin, our pride, our rebellion upon himself. And God punished him. Those who look to Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, he has given them his righteousness. It is a gift. It is not earned. It is not deserved. It is given freely to those who put their faith and trust in him, to those who look to him, who believe in him. And what's more, Jesus did not stay dead. God raised him from the dead. And so not only now are we saved from sin and death that we deserve, but we are saved into new and eternal life with Christ. So our greatest problem, spiritual death, it has been conquered by Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we will be raised with him. We have now been reconciled to God and gathered back into his family that we might know him, enjoy him, and bear his image for all of eternity. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, it says, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And the word gospel, it's an English translation of this Greek word evangelion, which means good news or good news message. That's how it's translated. A good message. And that's exactly what the gospel is. How God has freed us from our sin and the penalty it deserves through Christ. So that by looking to Christ, we might be forgiven of our sins and enjoy eternal life with God for all eternity. This is the gospel and it is a message. It is the message that tells all people of the earth, including you and including me, how we can be numbered among the saints giving praise to King Jesus for all of eternity. It's the gospel message. But a message is no good without a messenger. A message is no good without a a means through which the message can be communicated. Last week I was on a trail in the woods. Had a few voice messages to listen to and then respond to. Uh, So I got out for a little walk. I was sending a voice message to a good friend who lives on the East Coast. I was just updating him on uh, what the Lord's been teaching me and uh, just what he's been revealing to me in his word. Uh, Life updates with the family. It was probably like a 12 or 13 minute message. And so I was talking, walking in the woods and I went to send it and realized it had recorded about 30 seconds, the message. So for a good 12 minutes, I'm standing or I'm walking through the woods, just talking to myself like a crazy person. What was the problem with that? The problem was not the message. The problem was that my means to communicate the message had malfunctioned. It doesn't matter how epic or amazing or important the message that I had to deliver was. It was not going to be heard without a means to communicate it. And here's the connection. God has established a means to communicate the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says that everything is from God. 
who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Verse 20, therefore we are Christ's ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. See, God's chosen means to communicate the gospel message is his ambassadors, his church. It is his church. Not, not the church out there, right? Not, not the idea of the church. No, the actual church, our church, you and me together, knit together as a family of God. We are the vehicle that God has chosen to make himself known among the nations. We are the vehicle that God has chosen to gather his people back to himself from every corner of the earth. And so as ambassadors of Christ, as carriers of the gospel message, what is our job description? How are we to be faithful with this message of reconciliation that God has given us? I think Jesus has given us our job description as a church with absolute clarity. In Matthew 28, if you want to flip there with me, the book of Matthew, chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Here's what we read. This is after his ascension. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's our job description. This is the, mess, the, mess, or the mission that God has given his ambassadors. To go and to make disciples of all nations. This is God's mission. And his chosen vehicle to accomplish his mission is his church. This is why the church exists. This is why our church exists. You know, our mission statement as a church, it comes directly from this passage. I know a lot of you, you've got that Walnut Creek logo tattooed somewhere on your body. You probably have the mission statement right underneath, right? What does it say? We exist to glorify God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who love and worship him in all they do. And as we look at this mission statement, we cannot gloss over the why behind this mission statement. What is the why of this mission statement? It is God's glory. God's mission is to make himself known, right? It is to be glorified among the nations. The Great Commission, and then by extension, our mission statement as a church, it captures the means towards this end, which is making disciples. But the end is not making disciples. The end is God's glory. And it's for his glory that he commands his church, full of his ambassadors, to go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, there's our introduction. If you're taking some notes, you want an outline for the rest of our time this morning, 
Don't worry, it won't be as long. Here are the three words. Go, make disciples of all nations. So go, the Great Commission, it does not begin with a passive suggestion. It begins with a command to action. Right, Matthew 28, 19 begins with the word go. But to understand the word go, the command go, we have to understand it as it relates to the last sentence of this passage where Jesus promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the command here is not go and figure out how to make disciples, church. The command is go and I will be with you. Immediately before his ascension, Jesus instructed his disciples to go. But then he also said, stay. He said, don't go. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says, it says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, not to go, but to wait for the Father's promise. And the Father's promise, it was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise in Matthew 28, 20. God is with us to the end of the age through his Spirit. See, he does not intend his disciples to go without him, without his presence. And so we read about this, this promise, the Father's promise, the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. If you're in Matthew 28, you want to just flip a few pages to Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so people saw this. They said, what is going on? Are these, are these people drunk? And then Peter stood up and says, no, guys, they, they're not drunk. He corrected them. He explained that they're now filled with the Holy Spirit. And then from there, Peter began to share the gospel with everyone that was around him. And then we read in Acts 2, 37. You want to jump down a few verses to Acts 2, verse 37. It says, when they heard this, when they heard the message of the gospel, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 says, So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Okay, so then what? I mean, they, they had received the Father's promise. Could they go now? Could... They, they were filled with the Spirit. So let's go. It's time to go. Come on, let's go. He said, go, let's go. But that's not what happened first. Acts 2.42, the next verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. So here's what we see. The Holy Spirit did not lead believers off on their own individual missions. The Holy Spirit first led believers not to go, but to gather. Remember, this is God's ultimate purpose. He's gathering his people back to himself. And ultimately, all of those who are part of God's covenant community will be gathered around his throne in the heavenly kingdom. Today, he's gathering his people into 
churches, little embassies of the heavenly kingdom here on earth, as Jonathan Lehman helpfully describes, that are full of his ambassadors, his messengers. And so the command to go to his ambassadors, it's not without criteria. How is one to go? When we consider the promise and we consider what we see in the development of the early church, we know that we are to go in fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with other gathered believers, the church. That is how we are to go. And as we go in this manner, what is our purpose? What are we going for? Here's our second word on the outline, to make disciples. We look at the word make disciples in the text. We notice it's really just one word in Greek that means to disciple or to teach. And so another way to think about the mission of the church is that the church is to go and teach. And what are we to teach? We are to teach how to be a disciple, how to follow Christ. And if the church is to make disciples or to teach others how to be a disciple, then wouldn't it make sense that we know what a disciple is? What is a disciple? And I think Matthew 28, Jesus clarifies this for us in the Great Commission as well, where he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And so I think this, this reveals the marks of a disciple. First, a disciple is baptized. A few weeks ago, we worked through a number of aspects related to baptism. If you weren't here, if you have questions around baptism of what it is and uh, what it means, I would just encourage you to go back just a few weeks and listen to the sermon on baptism. But secondly, they observed everything that Jesus commanded. A mark of a disciple is one who obeys Jesus. So then the next question, if we follow some logic, is, well, what is it that Jesus has commanded? How do we obey everything that Jesus has commanded? In Matthew 22, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command is in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it's not instructing the church to simply teach people what to do. No, instead, it is instructing the church to teach people who to love. It's not just mindless, heartless obedience that's the mark of a disciple. Do you know what needs to happen before you can truly love someone? You have to know them. You can't truly love someone that you do not know. Sure, you can obey someone that you do not know. You can do what they say, but you can do it with a heart that's cold or defiant or distant or bitter or apathetic. You can obey without love. 
but heartless obedience is not the mark of a disciple. And so here's the question. If the greatest command is to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and the mission of the church is to teach people how to do this, then how? How do we engage in this mission? How do we as a church teach people how to love God with all that they have? And you cannot love someone you do not know. And so what do we do? We make God known. We proclaim him. We want to make him known. We want to help people see God for who he is. And then we want them to respond accordingly. Because if we see God for who he is, if we actually see God for who he is, the only response that we could possibly have, it is to love him with all that we are and all that we have. And there's another word that captures the heartbeat of Matthew 22. That word is worship. It's worship. See, the mission of the church is not simply to take or to make converts that do Christian things. It is to make God known in a way that promotes genuine worship among the saints. See, God is passionate about this because we were made for this purpose. He is worthy of this purpose. This is Paul's strategy for discipleship. In Colossians 128, it says, We proclaim him. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what is Paul's strategy for discipleship? It's proclaiming Christ. So again, our mission statement, the reason our church exists, it is to glorify God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who do what? Who mindlessly, heartlessly obey him? No, who love and worship him in all that they do. We also have a vision statement as a church. Our vision statement, it explains how we believe we can fill, we can fulfill the mission statement. And our vision statement is simply this. It's lifting up Christ in our city and beyond. It's lifting up Christ. It's making Christ known. See, the church is called to go and make disciples or again to go and disciple or teach. And whom are we to disciple and teach? The nations, which is why this cannot just stay in our city. We lift up Christ in our city and beyond because God has called us to go and make disciples of all nations. Why has he commanded us that? Because in Genesis 11, he scattered the nations. And now, He is in the process of gathering the nations back to himself for the sake of his glory. See, God's purpose, it is a global purpose. So the church's mission is a global mission. So as a church, one way that we have aimed at discipling the nations, at making him known among the nations, is by sending workers to places around the world where Christ has not yet been preached. Places that have currently limited or no access whatsoever to the gospel message. So that's one way that as a church, we've sought to make God known among the nations. But do you know what a mark of an unhealthy church is? It's when the workers on the field own the mission of the church to a greater degree than the rest of its members. See, bringing 
the gospel to the unreached is not an exclusive work for those that are on the field. It doesn't mean that everyone goes to the field by any means. See, God has uniquely wired each person in the church to use their gifts and resources in different ways, and that's a glorious and wonderful thing. But a healthy church will have a variety of ways in which its members partake in the mission, but it will have unity and cohesion in the ownership of the mission. You know how I would describe the workers that we've sent overseas? I would describe them as human. They're people. I love them. They're wonderful people, but they're people. They're just like you and me. They're ordinary believers who have grown to love Jesus and obey his commands. And as fellow ordinary believers who have grown to love Jesus and obey his commands, our task in this, it is to pray for and to support and to encourage our workers well. We want to pray for more workers to be sent out to the nations who have not yet heard the gospel of Christ. But there must be unity in the ownership of the mission. So God has called us to take the gospel to the unreached around the world. There's no question about that. And just as God has called his church to disciple the nations by doing so, he has also called his church to disciple the nations by sharing the gospel with the unbeliever across the street. By making Christ known to someone who does not yet know him in your workplace or in your classroom or in your family. And one thing I think it's worth clarifying here. When I say the words sharing the gospel, I would imagine that there's a number of thoughts that go through our minds. And those thoughts, I would imagine, likely lean into one of two ditches. There's just just one lean, one way or the other. And one ditch our thoughts can lean toward, it's actually a very narrow understanding of the mission of God. And we can think the mission of God equals evangelism, which equals sharing the gospel with strangers on a regular basis. And when we think about it that way, some of us think, sweet, I do that. I'm totally on mission for God. Go me. And some of us think, I don't do that. I'm worthless. Oh boy, I don't do that. That's one ditch. The other ditch our thoughts can lean toward is a very broad understanding of the mission of God. And we can think that sharing the gospel can actually be done in a number of ways. One way to share the gospel is to share the gospel. The other way is to share the gospel. They might include inviting someone to a hangout with church friends or playing Life 107.1 in the car with my windows rolled down. Or I wear my cross necklace. I, I, I'm on mission for God because I tipped my server 22%. Here's the clarification. There is nothing wrong with sharing the gospel with complete strangers on a regular basis. In fact, we praise that. That is a wonderful thing. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with smiling and leaving a generous tip. But neither of those things encompass the totality of God's mission. See, God's mission is more than evangelism. God's mission is not 
less than evangelism. He has certainly gifted certain people in the church with unique abilities to communicate the message of the gospel clearly and effectively. But listen, a gift of evangelism is not a prerequisite to evangelism. That is not the requirement. Sharing the gospel, telling someone the good news of salvation with someone that has not yet come to know Christ, I believe that is part of the mission of God that he has called all believers to. And so God has called us to bring the gospel around the world to places where it has not yet been preached. He has called us as a church to bring the gospel across the street to our neighborhood who does not know Christ. And I would say God's mission includes one another. It includes the church. He has called the church to disciple the nations by bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of one another in the church. See, there is not a soul on earth that does not need to hear the message of the gospel. You and I need to hear the message of the gospel. We need to be reminded of how good God has been to us in sending his son for our sins. This great commission, the mission of God, it was given to the church by the head of the church, who is Christ. And so when I say it was given to the church, here's, here's just what I don't mean, okay? What I don't mean, we've, we've worked through this a little bit already, but here's just an, another picture to have in your mind. What I don't mean is that the church is like a cruise ship. Okay, the captain knows where to go and how to get there. Everyone else on the ship is just along for the ride. Okay, I think this is a wonderful picture of an unhealthy church. In a lot of ways. <laughs> when I say it was given to the church, here's what I do mean. I mean like the church is like an old, massive ocean vessel that has dozens of oars sticking out of either side. And the only way that ship is going to get from point A to point B is if everyone sits down and starts rowing. And what does it mean to row? It means that you have come into God's family through Christ. And you are marked as a member of God's family through baptism. And you are regularly knit together with the family of God through communion. And you are bound together with the family through membership. And now you are being sent with your family on mission. That's going to look differently for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. But either way, as each one of us sits down, we take our oars in our hands... As we go out together on mission for the sake of God's glory, there are three things we need to keep in mind. And this is where we're going to close this morning. First thing we need to keep in mind, it is the command of Christ. And who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And in Matthew 28, the first thing that Jesus does in his great commission is he reminds his disciples of that. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, go if you want. Go when you feel like it. You can go when it's the right season in your life. He says, go therefore. Go in light of my authority. You are to go. It's not an invitation. It is a command. It is not a suggestion. He leaves no doubt that this is his command, his will for his church. So the first thing we need to do is we need to keep in mind the command of Christ. The second thing we need to do is we need to keep in mind the certainty of the Spirit. The last thing Jesus does in the Great Commission, again, he reminds his disciples of his ongoing presence. This is not a work that the church does apart from the work of the Spirit. In fact, it's impossible work apart from the work of the Spirit. Making disciples is not the work of man. We are responsible to go. God owns the work. Or God owns, owns working in the hearts of people. God commands disciples to remember this. He says, remember, I am with you always. And we must remember this or we will become proud and arrogant and think that we're responsible for the spiritual fruit in people's lives. Or we will grow discouraged and paralyzed because we simply realize how humanly impossible the task is that Jesus has given his church. We remember that the Spirit is with us and it's certain. The third thing we remember is the faithfulness of the Father. See, this is the mission of God. He will accomplish it. And no one is more passionate about the mission of God than God himself. No one is more passionate about God's glory than God himself. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God rebukes Israel for their unfaithfulness and their weak devotion. And then he says, my name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to the setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. See, the mission of God, it will not fail. It cannot fail. And God has promised that his church will be the vehicle for this mission. So how do we get from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7? How do we see the glory of God in gathering his people back to himself? It is through his church. It is through you and me, united and bound together as his family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are unworthy of the task that you have given us. God, we have no way of walking in faithful obedience to you if you are not at work in us. I pray, God, that as a church you would awaken our heart to the mission that you've called us to. That you would encourage us, you would equip us, you would embolden us to speak the message of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that as a church, you would use us 
in tremendous ways to gather more and more of your people back to yourself that you might be glorified. We need your grace for all of this. We thank you that it is ours in Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. All right, at this time in our service,